Welcome back to Takes by the Lake here at Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice. we're here with another Browns podcast. This is the pre-free agency edition. We're recording this on Sunday. We have a great guest, Andrea Hankst, who covers the Browns, the Steelers, the AFC North, the whole league. With her, we talked about, in particular, some good talk about Todd Haley. She's covered the the Steelers since 2012, so she knows Todd Haley. She knows how he ran that Pittsburgh offense. And we talked about how Todd Haley is going to use what he now has with this Browns offense, with Tyrod Taylor, with the running back they might draft, with the acquisition of Jarvis Landry. We got into that. We talked about the Browns window that appears to be opening in the AFC North, which I think is something that we'll continue to talk about all summer about maybe the Steelers, Bengals, and Ravens being on a downward trend. And if you're a Browns fan, hopefully you think the Browns are on an upward trend. We also talked about the trades the Browns made, of course. We talked about what they should do in the draft. It's a good talk. We're going to get to Andrea, but I want to briefly, 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 talk about Sashi Brown because I can't help it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it every week. But the Twitter, it's the Twitter (laughs) makes me do it. And here's what's driving me crazy a little bit at the moment. Two things. One are (sighs) the people who are using the John Dorsey moves to criticize the past regime and saying, well, now John Dorsey is fixing all of Sashi Brown's mistakes. Sashi Brown wasn't perfect. Signing Kenny Britt wasn't perfect. The way the quarterback situation worked out last year wasn't perfect. Of course he made mistakes. But that's just, I just think that's factually incorrect, okay? So uh, to view this as John Dorsey fixing the Sashi Brown mistakes, um, they could have had better receivers, right? They could have. But, but I, I, just, I just think that's wrong. And I, and I don't need to explain it for 10 minutes why I just think that's an actually like factually incorrect way of viewing this. Because if you've ever read me or listened to me, you know what I think. But then there's the other side of this, which is the people who are now saying, and, and I've seen this a lot of places, saying like, well, don't forget to give Sashi Brown credit for this. And people talking about revisionist history with now you're going back and giving Sashi Brown credit. And there, so there are some people who criticize Sashi Brown endlessly while he was doing this, who are now saying, well, he did lay the groundwork for this. He did set the table for this. In retrospect, you can look back as someone, if you are someone who criticized Sashi Brown, and now see that he laid the groundwork for this. Yeah! Yeah! Yes! It's, because listen, it's not revisionist. It's not revisionist history. It's just visionist history. This was the vision. This was always the plan. I don't know what to tell you. I don't. This was it. And, and, and I get it. You can disagree with the fundamentals of it. There's a guy I really like on Twitter. And I'm going to have him on again. Jake Burns. He's been on this podcast again. Uh, he's been on this podcast before from Waiting for Next Year. He's really good on film stuff. He's a really smart football guy. He has a problem with the 1-31. That got them to this point. That's a completely valid, smart opinion. That I think the one in 31 wasn't worth it, was too much pain to get here. 
and was not the right way to go about it. That's completely valid. But, but Jake understands the deal. He just questions whether that was the right way to go about it. But if, but if you're someone coming in from a different angle and saying, oh, yeah, now, like now you realize it? Like now? Now that he's fired, now you get it? Oh, yeah, well, hey, you've got to give... You've got to give Sashi Brown some credit for what he did here, setting things up with his salary cap and all these draft picks for the Browns. Got to give Sashi some credit. Where were you? Where were you? Did you have cotton in your ears? Were your eyes covered? That's, that's what was happening the whole time. So if you don't think the 1-31 in 31 was worth it, I get that, for real. But, like, if you're sitting here... That's how you have the number four pick. It's how you have three picks in the second round. It's how you have... you. The Steelers are going to restructure Joe Hayden. He was okay last year. He wasn't great. You went crazy when they got rid of Joe Hayden. Like, they... All the things. All of the things. Okay, so I just... I don't want to always do that. But, but when I see two things, which is either... Like, continued criticism of the past... And just acting like this was just completely broken and now, thank God, there's someone here with a brain who can fix it. That just makes me scratch my head. And 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 then the people who have like changed their minds and now suddenly, like over the weekend, they first the first time they figured this out. Now they get it. That makes me scratch my head. So I'm bald from scratching my head and pulling my hair out. I don't want to do this every week. Um, and I won't. And I won't. And I have a thing half written. I guess I'll put it up. I don't know if people want to keep reading. I'm saying the same thing. I've said the same thing for two years because it is the same thing. And he made mistakes and mistakes were made. It wasn't perfect execution. It was not perfect execution. And John Dorsey in the end may execute this step better than Sashi Brown would have. Maybe. That's certainly a valid opinion. I don't know where I stand on that. I think they both could have done it. But this was going to happen regardless, and this was always the plan. And I just, man, I just don't know. Like, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't see that, you can question whether it was the right plan. But if you don't see that it was the plan, man, I just don't know what you're looking at. And if you're seeing it for the first time now, if the sun rose on Friday and 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 Saturday morning, and after these deals were made, and you went, ah. Now I get it. You had your eyes closed for two years, man. All right, Andrea Hankst. She's better than me. Her talking is better than me ranting. She's good. Listen to this. It's coming up next on Takes by the Lake. Andrea Hankst talking about the Browns, the Steelers, the AFC North, and the NFL Draft. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Many people in Northeast Ohio are forced to make tough choices. Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, rising heat costs. Those are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table. That can often result in hunger, but this is where you can help. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals for hungry people in Northeast Ohio. So right now, go to harvestforhunger.org and donate. That's Harvest 
HelpForHunger.org, Help Feed Your Neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. All right, we're happy to have Andrea Hankst on the line with us here on Takes by the Lake. She is someone who understands the Browns, understands the Steelers, understands the AFC North as a whole, and also knows the whole league. So she's able to bring a lot of good perspective to things. She writes for SB Nation. She writes for Fansided. In the past, you might have seen her work on Bleacher Report, Sports on Earth. She's everywhere, and and I'm very curious. We're going to get into the trades, Andrea, but but I'm very curious about sort of fitting the Browns into the picture of the AFC North because with everything the Browns have gone through, everything they're doing, if they had three other teams in their division that were three of the best teams in football and were going to continue to be three of the best teams in football for the next five years, that would be a problem for them. But but as you look, Andrea, well, especially the Steelers, but I'm just curious on your whole perspective on the division. How do you sort of see the AFC North evolving in the next couple years? Where do you think the Bengals and the Ravens and the Steelers are sort of in their cycle as franchises? Well, I think with the other teams in the AFC North, non-Browns teams, a lot of their core players are getting older And even if they're not getting older in terms of career, they're getting old enough to command larger salaries. They're becoming starters. They're commanding a lot of money. So these franchises, their franchise players, uh, you know, some of them getting older, you know, look at Baltimore with Terrell Suggs, for example. Uh, Quarterbacks are getting older, like Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh. And then players are getting more expensive, Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, and and so I think that those things combined uh, are going to weaken the big three, if you will, in the AFC North, at least for the next couple of years. And I think that that presents an opportunity for the young Browns to make that leap forward. I think that that, that's something that could occur in the next couple of years. But, you know, got to get certain things right before we get to that point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, it's like, it's like, oh, great. All the teams that have been beating them for two decades might get a little bit worse. Well, yeah, you still got to do something about it as the Browns, obviously. But that, I mean, when you view the league, that matters, though, doesn't it? I mean, like, I know, I don't know, if you're talking about, like, the NFC East sometimes, it's like, well, like, this, the, the Cowboys might be good, and the Eagles might be good, and, and maybe the Redskins are doing something. But, you know, like, if you're in the NFC East right now, and you look at the Eagles, and you look at the, the roster they've built, and the quarterback quarterbacks they have, they might not be going anywhere for a while, and that makes life harder. That does... That does matter in the in the list of things that matter to a team's chances to, to compete. You've got to look at the six games you're playing in your division and the people you're fighting for a playoff spot, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, being geared up to play and, and defeat and be competitive with the teams in your division, that's how you win. That's how that's a, the, the easiest path to a playoff spot is being really good in your division, having the winning record in the division. So that's priority number one. And I'm sure that that's something that every Browns coach and every coach in the AFC North has in mind about every other team. I mean, you, you can see over the years looking at draft classes just between the Steelers and the Ravens where they're sort of drafting at each other and thinking about the next step 
that the Ravens are going to take. So the Steelers make a step and, and back and forth when, when that rivalry is really, really hot uh, in the last 10 years. So, I mean, you, you have to, you, there is a react. There has to be a react within the division, but of course there has to be a react in, in, within the whole league because ultimately your goal is to get to the Super Bowl, and you're not going to be playing somebody in your division in the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, Andrea, you, you probably you know the whole league, but you you probably know the Steelers and the Browns the best. This is an obvious question, but I'm just curious to see how you answer it. How 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 would you describe? How would you put into words what having Ben Roethlisberger has done for the Steelers? What has that done for the Steelers? for the entirety of his career to have that position settled, to have that position be a guy who can win you games at the end of a game, who you know is going to be there, who is consistent. And if the Browns get this right, because that's that's what they want. That's what everybody wants. But they, mm-hmm. there's an example of it right over the border. If the Browns get this right at quarterback, like what would that do for them? But there's an example in Pittsburgh. How just What does it mean for a franchise to have a guy like that for 15 years that you just know is going to get the job done? Well, for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Ben Roethlisberger this whole time has essentially defined their offense. Uh, the style of quarterback he is, his size, the way he extends plays, his elusiveness has dictated basically how that entire offense has evolved over the years while he's been under center. Uh, the way that the offensive line has been structured, the reason why Mike Munchak is the offensive line coach for that particular line, uh, the way the run game is played out, why they wanted a guy like Le'Veon Bell to be their, their running back when they drafted him. Uh, you know, the way that they employ Antonio Brown, the way they, they look at the tight end position, all of these things uh, are directly related to Ben Roethlisberger as a quarterback and what kind of quarterback he is. And then there's all, all the other things that Roethlisberger brings to the table that you can't necessarily expect just from every quarterback. The uh, You know, he takes a lot of hits. He's had a lot of injuries, but he's also played hurt a lot. And that level of resilience uh, is just like a, a kind of the icing on a cake for a, a quarterback who's he's defined that offense and successfully done so. And uh, I think that would be a model for any team that's searching for a quarterback to look for the guy who defines your offense for a decade or more. And that's the thing it's it, it in, with the Browns. We've heard John Dorsey say when he got here that he wanted to sort of get guys that fit uh, Hugh Jackson. Um, but then we see that he he goes and gets Tyrod Taylor when everybody assumed that Hugh Jackson wanted AJ McCarron. It always it makes me a little worried when a team when a GM thinks about building to the specifications of a coach. But it's interesting to me to hear you talk about building to the specifications of a quarterback. Does that, so in the end, that makes more sense that if the Browns say, listen, we're going to get Sam Darnold, or we're going to get Baker Mayfield, or we're going to get Josh Allen, whoever we get, we then want to build an offense that fits his skills. Do you think it's more important for an offense to fit a quarterback than it is for the offense to sort of fit maybe what the coach thinks he wants to do? Or is it just as important to have offensive players who fit the style of a coach? Does that make sense if the Browns say, we want guys that play like Hugh Jackson wants to play? You know, if you if you want your quarterback to define the offense, then you tailor that offense around that quarterback in order to give him the best chance to succeed. If the quarterback is that central focus, if the central focus is the scheme, oh, we need three wide receivers who can do this, then perhaps you can tailor, a, you know, try to 
point a quarterback in the direction of the scheme. Or maybe you don't even draft a guy that you have to mold. You already see a veteran in the league who fits that mold. Uh, but I think it's better overall to say, okay, this is the quarterback. Here's what he does best. You know, the, the coach has concepts in the way that he does offense, the way he prefers plays to be called, strategies, all of that. But how can you meld those, those two things in order to make the quarterback do the best he can on the field. And, I mean, if you're going to center your, your offense around the quarterback and the idea of finding a quarterback, a long-term answer at the quarterback position, as the Browns are, are going to be doing, regardless of, of Tyrod Taylor's length of tenure, um, then you, you look at Johnny Manziel, and there's numerous reasons why things didn't work out with Johnny Manziel, mm -hmm. but a big part of it was the coach is trying to make him into somebody he's not, a quarterback he's not. And he wouldn't have succeeded in that situation on the field, even if he didn't have any off-field issues, in my opinion, just because, you know, you're telling this quarterback who does X, Y, Z really, really well, and you're saying, hey, don't do that, do ABC. It doesn't yeah. make any sense, especially when you're, you're going after a guy, you're getting him in the first round, you like him, you want him, then why change him? Right. Okay, so this is building up to where I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this. Todd Haley, mm -hmm. someone that you've covered for, for several years um, in your time writing about the Steelers. Just one, What was your initial reaction, knowing both franchises, knowing both teams, your initial reaction to the pairing of Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson when that hire was made? What was that? I thought it was very interesting, uh, just because it just doesn't seem like the, the type of personality uh, meshing that one would expect to, to go very well between the two guys, just from, you know, what what we kind of know, uh, you know, about uh, their personality types and, 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 you know, stubborn stubbornness and all of that. Right. Um, and I, but I do find it fascinating that, you know, Todd Haley's coming in and he's taking over play calling duties. He's revamping the offensive playbook. Uh, it's going to look less and less, uh, you know, like it's got Hugh Jackson's fingerprint on it this year. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. Um, it seems like Jackson was at least willing to acquiesce for the sake of the hire, uh, his control, his degree of control over the offense. We'll just have to see how that goes. Uh, depending on how the offense looks, if it doesn't look so great the first two, three, four weeks of the season, you know, finger pointing, yes, uh, <laughs> and and uh, and and tension uh, will probably probably rule the day. So I, I have a, I have a million questions about Todd Haley, but that part sure. of it, the way from the outside, the, the reports that that you hear. Uh, the, was there? Did you feel like there legitimately was tension at the end with Todd Haley and Ben Roethlisberger, or generally with the offense? And and like, what did that did that have any effect on the team? Did you think, or did you think it was more normal? Hey, every of course, every now and then, guys have disagreements. Or was there something more to that, in your opinion? I think it was pretty normal. I think Roethlisberger got a little bit over the whole Todd Haley thing, which is understandable, uh, just because there was Todd Haley. He's he's good at calling plays, and then he's also not so good at calling plays. There's kind of a, a, a length of extremes uh, with Todd Haley's genius slash madness, if you will. Yeah, um, it's a good but phrase. I, I I think this was sort of routine tension that probably has come up numerous times uh, between Roethlisberger and Haley, um, just because just knowing the the personalities of, of the quarterback and the coach. Uh, 
it's just that sort of thing. You see, you see Tom Brady. He doesn't. He probably doesn't get. Along, he doesn't seem to get along with a lot of people sometimes either. I think it's just the nature of of personalities and of the sport sometimes. Okay, so when you were watching this Pittsburgh offense as run by Todd Haley, mm-hmm. more often than not, did you watch it and think, "Wow, that was a that was a well executed game plan"? Now, of course, when you have Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown and Ben Roethlisberger, lots of things can look good. But in general. Most of the time, did you think it was genius? They did, they utilized their guys well? Or how often did you think it was madness and think to yourself, what was Todd Haley doing on that series or in that game? I think that it, he, he, he did the right thing, made the right calls probably 70, 75% of the time. Uh, the problem is that, that 25 to 30% were very stark in relief from the stuff that went well. Uh, just, um, you know, going against defenses that give up 180 or 190 rushing yards a game and are the top passing defense in the league. So just throw the ball 50 times and then be surprised when you don't win. Yeah. You know, it's it's things like that that make you scratch your head and kind of wonder. And that dates back to stuff when, when Haley was with Kansas City, if you recall, uh, everybody kind of screaming about his usage or failure to use Jamal Charles. And everybody's saying, you know, this is Jamal Charles. Why is he getting... 10 touches a game. This doesn't make any sense. So, you know, you're going to get those moments with Todd Haley. I think you're going to get those moments with, with any offensive coordinator uh, in the NFL. Everybody gets a little nervous uh, about their offensive lines and their quarterbacks and second guesses themselves all the time. Uh, so, you know, be prepared to, you know, you're, n- you're not going to go out there and see the best of the Steelers offense every single play that the Browns execute on offense this year. It's Todd Haley is, is fallible. <laughs> okay, okay. It's interesting because that that's a thing, and you know that with Hugh Jackson too, that Hugh Jackson would run the ball a little bit in the first half, and then in the second half of the game sometimes you'd forget that the Browns even had a running back on the roster. Mm-hmm. It seems like so. both Hugh and Haley maybe have an instinct to lean a little heavy on the pass and forget about the run at times then, right? There's sometimes, yeah, that, that that absolutely happens. As the uh, as the season wore on, at the very least, you know, when you have a guy like Le'Veon Bell, you have to get the ball in his, in his hands. Um, so I would say it's a little less drastic than the times when we saw Hugh completely give up on the run because Hugh seemed to kind of panic at times. He would go in to halftime maybe with a modest lead, maybe with an okay lead, maybe just slightly behind, and then just go into all-pass mode and kind of panic and, and play from a deep-behind mentality uh, and where the run game disappeared. And uh, I, I don't think Todd Haley particularly has that panic instinct in him Good. so much. <laughs> so and I think that will that will be one of the differences you see in terms of, you know, uh, play calling and, and you know, uh, what is it, like game awareness? Yeah, yes. And awareness. clock awareness and, yes. where, and, and all that kind of stuff. I think you'll see a difference there. And, and again, you know, ask Bengals fans. There were times when, you know, that was, that was a big problem with Hugh when he was the offensive coordinator there is understanding, like, where you are in the game and don't freak out and, and stay the course. Okay. I think Hugh Jackson ruined Deshaun Kaiser. I don't know. I think Deshaun Kaiser also failed Hugh Jackson in many ways, but I feel like that was a terrible match last year. Not I feel. Everybody, you have eyeballs. You feel it. Um, mm-hmm. So as the Browns prepare to draft a quarterback high in this draft, I think at one, I guess it could be at four, but that concerns me 
a little bit. What do you think of the ability, because when they draft this quarterback, it's not just about this year. We all expect, I um, think we're all 100% sure that Tyrod Taylor, as long as he's healthy, is going to be the opening day quarterback for the Browns yeah. this year. But the but the, 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 the real issue is preparing and developing this young number one or number four pick quarterback behind him. Just from what you have seen of them, what is your instinct about Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley developing this young quarterback for the Browns? You know, I find that to be a very fascinating question. Um, basically, I think that Hugh might be a little bit gun-shy now after his experience with, with Deshaun Kaiser last year, and especially the ways that he was probably getting pulled in a few different directions. You know, he was trying to do the A.J. McCarron thing later on. You know, uh, you know, Sashi had his ideas. Jimmy has his ideas, all of that kind of stuff. But, at the, you know, at the end of the day, he was, he, he was charged with, with Deshaun Kaiser and his development. And I think he made a massive mistake in the sense that you don't shatter the confidence of a rookie quarterback. You can't play with them like that. And I think that he sort of played with them and, and, and didn't really think through uh, the what the effects of this would be um, on the Browns, on the locker room, and on Kaiser and on his career. Um, that being said, I think he got a little nervous. I, I mean, you got to take coach's comments at the scouting combine kind of with a grain of salt. But he did say that whether they take a quarterback at – one or four or wherever that he'd like to sit that rookie for an entire first first season no matter what and so i don't know if that's a response to him his own self-critique of how he handled kaiser last year uh or something that's come down from above telling him you know we're going to take this quarterback at one but he just don't think that he's going to be your guy right away uh or whatever it is um so that's something to keep in mind but on the other hand with todd haley yeah, he was kind of, you know, he's brash. He'll yell at you. I mean, that yep. was part of the problem uh, that Roethlisberger had when he came in and took over for Bruce Arians. Is that Arians is, you know, a lot more of a player's coach, you know, like, hey, what's up, buddy? You're my guy. Like, we're friends. And Todd Haley is like, no, you have to do it this way. Get to work. You're a jerk. You know, he, he'll tell you like it is, and it won't sound nice. Um, so how a rookie handles that? Uh, I think is going to be interesting. But at the same time, Tyrod Taylor is the perfect buffer mm-hmm. for all of this between those coaches and that rookie because he's been through a ringer and handled it so well. And I don't think that there's – I think that's 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 the main key why Tyrod – it's so much better that he's there. There's a couple of reasons, but that's a huge reason why he's more preferable to McCarron. That's a great point. The idea that, that maybe you have uh... – Coaches in charge who who can be harsh or brash, but if you have Tyrod Taylor there um, saying like you know this is how it works, guiding right. a guy through this, because I think sometimes you, you know and I don't I get mad at revisionist history, so so I'll say I I wasn't that upset me personally when the Browns didn't have a veteran last year. I thought you know what if you draft a rookie and you want to play a rookie, play a rookie. You're gonna be bad anyway. You may as well find out about Deshaun Kaiser. Um, and obviously, I mean, I think watching that, the way Hugh Jackson handled that, sort of changed my view about how you handle a rookie quarterback because that was yeah. that was so awful. That was so awful in the moment. But part of it is because I think of Hugh, who Hugh Jackson is and his tendency to panic and that kind of thing. And it's yeah. like, well, if your coach is like that, 
then you probably really do need a veteran in there. If your coach is maybe more of like an understanding kind of guy, and I know maybe there's not many guys like that in the NFL, then maybe you don't need a veteran as much. But the idea that you just said of Tyrod as the buffer between the number one pick and these two brash coaches, that really brings home maybe how important a role Tyrod Taylor is going to play for the team. He's a good quarterback who can win games, but he's really mm-hmm. he might be this young guy's best friend, and that guy's going to need a friend. Absolutely, and especially if you're talking a situation, if you is is being honest, and whoever they draft one for whatever is going to, or the plan is to have him sit most of or all of his rookie season, then he also doesn't have that pressure where he needs to start, where like Tyrod can say, okay, like just watch, learn, here's how things are done. Yeah, you know, this is annoying. This is what you have to listen to. This is what you can tune out without that that rookie being under the pressure of just like, I could be thrown out here at any moment. Yep. You know, that that already, I mean, that's you're investing when you have the number one overall pick or any first round pick for that matter. You're investing four years off the bat. And while it's not a ton of money in the sense of, you know, what, what guys get in second contracts and free agency, it is, you know, top top of the line money for rookies. And it's fully guaranteed. You are investing not just your money in this kid. You're investing time. Yep. You're saying, not only do I like this guy, maybe just maybe to play right now, but I like this guy for two years, three years, four years, maybe five. I pick up his option. So you're not just investing money in a guy and a pick in a guy. You're investing time in a guy. So it's fine if you have a guy you take first overall at quarterback and he sits for the whole year because you're investing in more than one year in him, hopefully. And I mean, if that's the goal, then it doesn't matter if he sits out his rookie year. And then that, you know, that puts some separation between his emotions and his psyche and like the stress of the NFL, the stress of Hugh, the stress of Todd Haley, and you get to get that buffer with Tyrod. That is a little frustrating to me now that you're the way you're talking about that. I I was fine last year, like with losing games, and I thought, you know what, you're gonna lose anyway. You're not gonna make the playoffs. Sure. Who cares whether you win zero games or four games? But one thing you're doing is you're investing time and a whole season in Deshaun Kaiser, and you're finding things out. And I said, you need by the end of the year, you need to either know that Deshaun Kaiser is a yes or a no. If he's a maybe, right. that's a problem. He clearly was a no. But at the same time, I would have been okay, and I think I would have preferred sort of keeping him around. Maybe he's your number three quarterback. I don't know what the situation would have ever been to see him get back on the field. I guess it would have been two injuries with, with, to a veteran and the number one pick you're going to have. But they right. did. They ended up going 0-16. It's like, okay, well, you went 0-16. What did you get out of it? And it's like, well, you spent a whole year trying to figure out something about a rookie quarterback, and then in the end, you dumped him. And so you really did waste that year in terms of that, in terms of the quarterback position. You didn't win, and then you also got rid of the guy that you were trying to find out things about. So that is a little frustrating to me. I could talk about quarterbacks all day, but I want to double back (laughs) on something very interesting I think you said. You were talking about Le'Veon Bell, Mm -hmm. and we all know how valuable he is, not just as a runner, but as a pass catcher. And we'll get to the draft and what you think the Browns should do in the draft and we'll get to what you think of what the Browns have done so far with their trades. But when you think about Le'Veon Bell, and when you think about the possibility of Saquon Barkley on the Cleveland Browns, 
Just the way that Todd Haley used Le'Veon Bell, catching the ball and running the ball, I think you and I can dig in a little bit on whether we think the Browns should draft Saquon Barkley. But if Saquon Barkley winds up as a Cleveland Brown, as a Cleveland Brown, how do you think Todd Haley would use him? Do you think that would be a good match considering how he used Bell in Pittsburgh? Sure. I mean, you know, Saquon Barkley, I mean, he's got... Yeah, he's. I, I saw what the NFL.com comp with him is, is Barry Sanders. Yeah, uh, you know, and the fact that he uh, he he does basically have have a, the fully well rounded skill set that you want to look for in a number one running back, uh, regardless of how the position is being valued around the league right now, which is all over the place, and and that, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's he's he has on paper everything that would point to an elite talent, and I'm sure that uh, in the Le'Veon Bell kind of role for Todd Haley, I'm sure that he would excel. Uh, you know, and and Le'Veon Bell, you know, he was a great runner and a, and a great pass catcher in college at Michigan State. wasn't really that great of a blocker. It took him basically his his rookie year to kind of understand the fundamentals of blocking. Now, when he got it, he got it, and he's he's very good at it. Uh, but then Barkley also comes in with those added blocking skills, blitz pickup skills, things like that, uh, that, you know, make him ready to go. Uh, so I'm sure that, that, you know, there's no doubt in my mind Saquon Barkley is on the Browns draft board and he's pretty high up there. Okay, so let's get to the draft and then we'll double back on some of the moves they've made. Sure. Work, work Saquon Barkley into this. We'll just talk about number one right now. Who would you take number one if you were the Browns? Who would be the guys that you, at the moment, would be thinking hardest about with the top pick? Quarterback. I would only go quarterback at number one. Okay. I would go either Rosen or Mayfield or Darnold. Okay. At number one. Uh, you know, and, and honestly, I love Lamar Jackson. I wouldn't mind if Lamar Jackson went number one. Uh, I think that if, you know, if the Browns look at his skill set and say, boom, then he's number one. Yep. So, uh, but I think that I think that quarterback uh, is number one. I do not think it's going to be Josh Allen. Um, Good. I keep having but, people on this podcast who agree with me about Josh Allen and do not want yeah, Josh Allen number one. Thank God. Okay, I feel good. Yeah. I feel good, Andrea. Yeah, I, I don't see it being Josh Allen, and I don't see the Browns taking quarterback at any other spot in the first round. I think it's time. Uh, basically, there's been a lot of lot of public discussion from the Browns front office quarterback. We need to get it done. And I know that that's been the rhetoric out of this, out of this organization and so many front offices and so many head coaches over the years. And then they put it off to number 22 again, and then they yep. put it off to number 22 again. Uh, but I don't foresee that happening this year. Uh, you don't just sit there and settle for a quarterback. You don't just, oh, I'll just you know wait until number four and see what quarterback falls to me. If you need a quarterback, uh, as, as, as uh, Jeff Schwartz, uh, offensive lineman, former offensive lineman in the NFL, has, has said repeatedly on Twitter uh, all offseason, you don't just sit there and wait for your quarterback to fall to you. That doesn't work that way. You have the number one overall pick. They need a quarterback. It's going to be quarterback. And if they love Saquon Barkley and he's there at four, boom, do it. But, like, you don't need to take a quarterback or a running back at number one. There's myriad reasons for it, regardless yeah. of Barkley's down. The only caveat to me, Andrea, is I, th- I think if you decide on Darnold or Rosen, that you've, you've got to get him at one. Sure. If, so- if you decide Baker Mayfield is our guy, we want he's the number one guy on our quarterback board, but we are 
100% certain Baker Mayfield will be there at four, and we think Saquon Barkley may not be there at four, and our ideal draft is Mayfield-Barkley. That's what we want. And we think the best way to get that is Barkley one, Mayfield four. And then you draft Baker Mayfield and say, hey, he was our guy. We just knew we'd get him. Like, I get that. I would get that because to me, that's basically taking Mayfield at one and taking Barkley at four, but you just flip the order to ensure you get both guys you want. But then, like, on the 1% chance that the Broncos trade up to three and draft Baker Mayfield ahead of you, then you have to set the building on fire. So it's like that, you know, like there's the poker game aspect to it that I do firmly believe, and, I, and I'm sure they will, I agree with you. They're not going to let a quarterback fall to them. They're, they've no. got to take the quarterback they like the best. However they evaluate it, take the qu- – because that's the thing in all this that I that I tell people as they bemoan not getting Carson Wentz and not getting Deshaun Watson. In that draft in 2016, as we understand it, they didn't evaluate Carson Wentz as the number one quarterback. They evaluated Jared Goff that way, and they couldn't Correct. get him. They couldn't get the, their top quarterback. Last year, they could have drafted Deshaun Watson at 12, but they didn't evaluate Deshaun Watson as their number one quarterback. I think they evaluated Mitch Trubisky or Patrick Mahomes that way, and they couldn't get him. So yes, they've passed on good quarterbacks, but they have not passed on their number one quarterback the past couple years. So now, given this opportunity, you must get your number one quarterback. But if you're 100% certain you can get your number one quarterback at four, then I can live with that. But my God. Like if you're wait, if they take Barkley and that trade comes in on draft night at number three, the Jets have moved up. Literally, people will be that in the tra- parking lot with pitchforks. That trade's going to happen, and that's why the Browns. I don't know if it's the Jets. I don't know what team it is, but the Browns. That's what's going to happen if the Browns don't do it at number one, because there's only so many free agent quarterbacks to go around that, yep. are, that people are willing to start at this point. Somebody's going to get Kirk Cousins, which means a bunch of other teams are not. Somebody's going to get AJ McCarron, and that's going to be who they're going to try to roll with, unless they can do something better in the draft. You're going to have teams. You have Arizona. You have yep. Denver. You have the Jets, you have the Bills, you have Washington, you have Minnesota. And yes, Sam Bradford's going to go somewhere, but you're going to need an insurance policy in case of his health. Same with Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, you know, you have a lot of teams, more teams than there are free agent quarterbacks who need starters. What's going to happen with Drew Brees with, in New Orleans? Nobody knows. Not yet. So, you know, there's going to be more needs and teams that have draft capital and have a lot of other pieces in place on their roster that they can give up draft spots to move up to number three, and they will do it. Yeah. Mark my words. And so if the Browns sit and wait at number four for whatever falls their way, they're not going to get a quarterback there. They're going to get Saquon Barkley and probably a really good defensive player. Sure, they're going to yep. get maybe Chubb there. Sure, that's and that's that's fine. That's That's a lovely draft haul. But that's a lovely draft haul for a team that has a quarterback. And the team has a quarterback in Tyrod Taylor for one year because that's what his deal is right now, $16 million in and out the door. So, you know, otherwise you have to go and look the day after the draft at Tyrod Taylor and say, hey, now we're going to give you a contract extension. You know, because what else are you going to do? You know, maybe you don't move up. You can't get Lamar Jackson try to move back up into round one because another team needs a quarterback. And they've got more – leeway or they've got a pick that they don't want to give up and they're already there at 13 so i don't see i don't see the point of of waiting uh 
to number four. I think, you know, quarterback is the need. There needs to be a top young quarterback on that roster. You do it at number one. I do think the poker aspect of this always fascinates me because I do think there's a way that if if you take your quarterback at one, let's say that you do want to get your quarterback in Barkley. That's your ideal draft for the Browns. You take sure. your quarterback at one, and now you're waiting to see, we hope Barkley gets to four. I think there's definitely a, a chance for sure that Barkley does get to four. I would not I be surprised. Too. I think their first three picks could be quarterbacks. Adrian Peterson didn't go first overall. Right. No, you're right. And even, I mean, Ezekiel Elliott went four. Leonard Fournette went four. Yeah, this, uh-huh. this, we are not in that world anymore. No. I, I, it seems like maybe if the Giants are going for it now with Eli, maybe they will take Barkley at two. But if, if you take a quarterback at one and Barkley goes second or third, that guarantees that if there are truly three elite quarterbacks in this draft, right? Say you take Darnold, Barkley goes two. That guarantees that either Mayfield or Rosen is going to be there at four, right? Sure. And now you can auction that pick. And I think there's almost a world that, for instance, if the three quarterbacks go in the first three picks and you get Barkley at four, great. If Barkley goes in the first three picks and another one of those quarterbacks falls to four, and you can create a bidding war between the Jets and the Broncos to get up to that spot, and you're only sliding back a spot or two, and you can still get Chubb or Fitzpatrick or or even Barkley or a guy you want— you Not walk Barkley. out of the draft with 12 more picks in 2019 is it, what happened. There's a lot of ways for this to go really right for the Browns. But Absolutely. I think the only way that it goes truly wrong is if you don't get the number one quarterback on your board. And the only way you don't get the number one quarterback on your board is by taking Saquon Barkley at one and rolling the dice. And so I know yeah. I put that scenario out there but I'm with you it's even if you're 99% sure it could work this is not a franchise that can that can risk that 1% you take your quarterback at one you're right absolutely and and, and you know for, for all the people who are, who are still furious about the Carson Wentz situation and the Sean Watson situation first off I get it but they're not the last quarterbacks who ever existed in the Correct. NFL draft it's okay there will be more in fact there are more there are more this year. So if you are angry because of Wentz and Watson, and therefore you're just like, screw it, they're going to mess up the quarterback thing anyway, take Saquon at one. No, there are more quarterbacks. They are there right now. Take them at number one, as long as it's not Josh Allen. <laughs> Music to my ears, Andrea. Music to my ears. And that's the thing. That's the thing that's frustrated me about the quarterback discussion for the past two years. And again, I get it, but it's an incomplete discussion. We can't have the, the we can't have the final full discussion, nuanced discussion about the Browns passing and passing is the wrong word. They didn't pass on them. They traded down and got value out of those picks. About trading down from Wentz and Watson until they get their quarterback. And when this is all said and done, then we can compare Carson Wentz to Deshaun Watson to Sam Darnold. And if you say, my God, Carson Wentz is going to the Hall of Fame, and it turns out that Sam Darnold sucks, then there's no argument there. You can't, it's hard to argue against that. Then they got it wrong. You can definitely say, oh, whoops, you know. (laughs) Yeah, then they got it wrong. But until they make that quarterback pick, and we see what that quarterback does, it's an incomplete argument. Because that that was the idea the whole time. Eventually they'll take one. 
gather assets while you do, but eventually they're going to take one. Andrea, before we go, I want to make sure I get your thoughts on the, the moves the Browns have made. Now, again, this podcast is going up very early this week. As free agency begins, we know the Browns are going to be active in free agency. So if you guys are listening to this later in the week, things have happened that we haven't talked about. We're saying we know more is coming. More, is, more is inevitable, ha- I think. And, and, and that's great. They have, they have room to do that. Their team will continue to get better. What you saw in the moves, the four moves that John Dorsey made, and I think it's fun to grade the individual moves, but in the end, for every GM, it's about roster building. It's about building the whole roster, and that means sometimes you lose this trade, but it sets you up to make this other trade. And you hope, So yeah, it's, you have to look at it in totality in the end. But after sure. the, the trades, the four trades, what was your vibe about how much better you think the Browns got and just your impression of John Dorsey in the first moves he made as Brown's GM, other than, of course, cutting Kenny, Kenny, cutting Kenny Britt, which is how he made his splash when he got here. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, and I, I think this actually lines up right with him making that Kenny Britt move as soon as he was hired. Uh, he's aggressive and strategic. Uh, you know, he's, he's made some aggressive moves, but he's not gone crazy. He's not out there saying here is $210 million over six years for Kirk Cousins or something like right. that. You know, he's being, he's being aggressive, but he's being very, very strategic about it. We already touched on exactly why Tyrod Taylor's it's a wonderful fit at quarterback for a young quarterback who's going to be coming in in the draft and you know he protects the football he's he's going to be really great uh in 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 todd haley's system um and i think that you know and that speaks to the the jarvis landry trade um you know everybody's kind of up in arms about it what does this mean for duke johnson you know he was out there being this grinded out yards after the catch slot receivers slash running back uh you know jarvis is going to take that slot role from him i don't particularly think so i think todd haley's got a couple of new guys a couple of fun toys to play with with after catch yardage i mean that's a lot of what antonio brown did in pittsburgh that's a lot of what Le'Veon bell did as a receiver in pittsburgh you got two of those guys out there with a quarterback in tyrod taylor who protects the football Therefore, he doesn't make a lot of risky throws. So you need to rely on yards after the catch for Tyrod to really get into his rhythm and be a really effective quarterback that wins games, scores touchdowns, wins the chains. Boom. You've got Duke Johnson and Jarvis Landry there. And I know that there there are some questions about Landry in terms of reliability. Uh, You know, he's not the big play guy that everybody wants him to be. But he fills a role and he does it very well. Uh, he catches a high volume of passes. He's got great after-catch yardage. That's what they need out of Landry in Cleveland. So I think it's going to be just fine with both of them. So I think that was a great move. Um, and uh, the one thing that has me a little confused, just a little, is trading Danny Shelton to yeah. the Patriots. Yeah, I get it because he's you know he's a two-down player. Clearly, they must think that uh, Larry Oak and Joby can come in and be a three-down player and, and not be so, you know, much of a downgrade, or they have an eye on somebody else in free agency or in the draft. Um, but the Browns had, you know, ten years struggling to stop the run. Depending, it didn't matter who they got in the draft. It didn't matter who their coordinator was. None of that. And then they finally kind of figured out a formula last year, and you know, Shelton had a huge role in that ability to stop the run. So giving up that 
key part of the one part of the defense that really, really performed well and needed to perform well after so long of not performing well, that's kind of a bummer. And he's probably going to own it <laughs> in, in New England. But they might, you know, that means a nice comp pick for the Browns, I guess, next year. Yeah, that's that's the hard thing is, and again, I, I'm going to reserve judgment a little bit until you see who they're playing instead of Danny Shelton, who ends up sure, taking yes. his snaps. Um, if Larry Oak, it's like, if you want to get Larry Joby on the field more, or like you said, they have a couple of other, other young defensive tackles on this roster. Mm-hmm. If they bring somebody in, and then in the end you say, well, okay, I guess there, there maybe really wasn't a spot here for Danny Shelton, and maybe they didn't get that much back for him, but you know what? Maybe maybe they're better off without him, and, and so it goes. That individual trade, maybe they lost that trade, but overall the roster will be better. So it is a little confusing. Sure. I agree with that, but it's like you wonder – God, you hope it's just not out there in a vacuum like we dumped this guy who was the number 12 pick in the draft to basically move up one round in the draft. And like you said, I think a lot of people think he'll be good in New England. And then if they have a so if they wind up with a hole at defensive tackle and teams are running between the tackles on them all year, you're going to go crazy and think, why did they do that? But you why they do that? You sort of hope like, well, they must have an answer in mind because if if they're going to make that kind of move. Um, Yes. Boy, I could talk to you, Andrea, for a, for a long time. We could go another couple hours on this, but I think we'll have to end so. it. Um, in the end, and I'll, I'll let you go on this one, and um, sure. just because it's fun to talk about offense, and it's fun to think about what that Pittsburgh offense has been um, with a great quarterback and, and incredible skill position players. And I'm not, I'm not. The Browns aren't close to that, obviously. But when you think about Tyrod Taylor and the quarterback they're going to draft. And I hope they keep Corey Coleman. I don't hope. I hope they don't pull a Danny Shelton with Corey Coleman and just sort of dump him. I hope they keep him around and try to try to develop him still. But with if they have Jarvis Landry and Josh Gordon and Corey Coleman and David Njoku and Seth DeValve and Duke Johnson and whether they draft Barkley or if they don't, I think everybody assumes they'll take a running back. In the second round, whether it's Geis or Michelle or Chubb or Ronald Jones or whatever, when you look at the Browns' offense, the pieces we'll expect, even if they aren't all in place yet, with the offensive line they put together last offseason, when you think about Todd Haley and this group of the the 11 guys they'll put out on offense and they'll have a more competent quarterback who's not going to turn the ball over all the time, what's your vibe about the potential of that Browns offense with Todd Haley calling the shots? I think on paper, it looks outstanding. It looks fantastic. Um, I think the real question will be, uh, how can you get the component parts to work together as a team? That's a lot of great individuals, a lot of great, talented individuals, including the new offensive coordinator. But it's so many new faces. Talking guys who were rookies last year or are going into their third season this year or going to be rookies this year, uh, might have a new situation at left tackle, depending on what happens with Joe Thomas. So the key will be the talent is there. These guys can all do their positions at a really high level. And that situation on paper looks great. And it's now taking those individuals and how long will it take for them to work as a team, as a unit, and as an offense, as an individual thing known as an offense, rather than a bunch of players. So that would be the next step. But on paper, that would be very, very impressive and something to look forward to uh, for the 2018 season. Andrea, how can people follow you on Twitter? 
They can find me on Twitter at fball underscore Andrea. That's F-B-A-L-L underscore A-N-D-R-E-A. Andrea, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. That was really (laughs) fun. Um, That was great. We will plan to have you on again uh, sometime before the season starts when all these pieces are finally together and we have a a full view of how John Dorsey is building this roster. But thanks for taking uh, time out of your day, and uh, it was a good time talking to you on Takes by the Lake. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Thanks to you guys for joining us. Thanks to Andrea Hankst for all of her time. Great discussion with Andrea. Make sure you follow her on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter, at Doug Lemerice, L-E-S-M-E-R-I-S-E-S. You should be able to subscribe to this podcast, to Takes by the Lake. It also might be called Cleveland.com Sports Podcast. We're still finalizing the transition. But get subscribed, especially before the draft, okay? Get subscribed uh, on Apple Podcasts. Get subscribed on Google Play. Stitcher should have it now. I don't know if Stitcher had it in the past. Stitcher should have it now. We're figuring out things. If if you have a place where you like to get podcasts and you can, can't get Takes by the Lake there right now, let me know and we'll work on that. And now I always beg for this with our Buckeye Talk podcast that I do with Tim Bielek and Bill Landis. Now I want some reviews on iTunes. Go to the Cleveland.com Sports Podcast. It's just Takes by the Lake now. We'll get the name changed over. But if but the other podcasts have their own feeds now. Wine and Gold Talk. Listen to that with Chris Fedor and Joe Varden on the Cavs. Cleveland Baseball Talk. That's Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga on the Indians. Make sure, of course, that you're listening to Dan Labe and Mary Kay Cabot on Orange and Brown Talk. That's all about the Browns. And then Buckeye Talk. Make sure you're listening to all of those and you're subscribed separately. But go give me a review. I don't think we. I think we have some old reviews on on uh, the Apple Podcast thing with what we used to do on this podcast channel. But now it's just me ranting and me talking to smart people about the Browns. So go review that. If you think I'm terrible, that's okay. But remember, the guests are good. The guests are good. So maybe give a five star because the guests are so good. And maybe you can get past the fact that I am a one-trick pony who likes to sit and scream into a podcast about Sashi Brown. So thanks to you guys for listening. Read me at cleveland.com. Follow us every week here at Takes by the Lake. Thanks again to Andrea. I'm Doug Maurice. And we'll talk to you next time.